Welcome to the Contrast Church Podcast. Contrast is located in Grandview, Ohio, with the mission to help people be with Jesus, become like Him, and live out His mission together. For more information on attending our meetings, our missional communities, or giving, visit contrast.church. Well, good morning, y'all. How we doing? I don't want to trip over this later, so better to save myself. Well, I, my name is Trey. I get to be the pastor at Contrast Church, and uh, glad you guys are here. We are continuing our journey in the book of John, uh, so I'm going to need you to do two things. One is get out your Bible, phone, if you want to have a physical Bible. We also have Bibles in the back. If you want to steal one, you can take that home. Uh, the second thing is I need you to get out your Bible scholar hat just for a second, uh, and because we're going to talk about something a little bit Bible nerdy for the first part. So if you're not into that, that's okay. You can take a little nap, and then about five minutes in, you can, you can focus on the story. Um, the reason I'm saying that is because when you open your Bible and you look at John 8, you're going to go to John 8, um, but we're going to start in verse uh, 53 of chapter 7, so it's like the, the verse right before John 8. It's kind of weird how they break it up. You're going to look, and you're going to look in your Bible, and you're going to see there that in 7.53, there's two brackets in your Bible. And you're going to be like, that's weird. What does two brackets mean? Is it a typo? It is not a typo. Um, And this is where the Bible scholar hat comes on today. This story has a lot of controversy on its validity and authenticity in the Bible. And you're like, well, this is really interesting. I didn't even know that was a thing in the Bible. And so what I want to do is over the next few minutes, I want to do two things. One, I want to talk about just the Bible, how the Bible came to be, why we trust in it, why it matters. Uh, And then two, I want to talk about why this passage has some issues that we want to parse out. And the main reason I want to do this and spend time in this is because uh, I find myself in 2024 in a Western culture uh, dealing with kind of two uh, prototypes of, of Christians. One is more subjective experience, meaning that they have experienced the power of Jesus in lots of like, ways in their life, um, like just freedom, healing, miracles, things that just they feel like, man, God has just been so present. And then there's this other group of people who are a lot more objective. I mean, they're a lot more logical. Uh, they're a lot more, like, science-based. They just, they're, they're like, i got to see it to believe it kind of thing. And there's not really a right or a wrong. And I, I'd say it's probably a spectrum at some time. Some of us just value things differently. Uh, but for the objective people, the validity of the Bible is a massive point of, I would say, tension, whether you're a believer or not a believer. In fact, from the outside, people looking in, a lot of the critiques of the church, other than us being a bunch of hypocrites, which we are because we're sinners, uh, is that the Bible doesn't have historical validity, credibility, those things. So a little bit of this is going to parse out some of that, the, the tension that we deal with and, and what we're, uh, we're at as a church. So we believe that the Bible is the authoritative word of God. We believe that it's truth. We believe that in it, uh, we experience life from Jesus and his, his death on the cross and the truth of that. And so we believe the Bible is the absolute truth. Now, when we say that, what we believe is we believe that in the original manuscripts. And you're like, what do you mean by original manuscripts? Your Bible is not the original manuscripts. Your Bible is a translation, most likely of a translation. And there's lots of distant translations uh, in English because we read English. If any of you are reading in Hebrew and Greek, uh, you can raise your hand. You can actually... Just come up and teach for me, because you probably are knowing this better than me. But most of us read it in English, uh, in Guatemala, in Spanish, right? But what it is, is it's taking the original manuscripts, thousands of documents uh, that are basically put together, assembled, and there's tons of different principles and rules they follow to assemble what is known as the Bible that we're reading now. So the Bible, specifically the Gospel of John, it was written anywhere from 60 to 90 AD by John, 
But then there's the, the original copies are not always in order whenever we read. And so they have thousands of rewritings of these copies. And so they go through a really rigorous process over hundreds of years. Like this, this, this document was dated 280. This document was at 580. What are the differences? And so the same as if you play a game of telephone with someone, right? A group of people, you say a phrase, and then they have to say it, say it, say it. And then at the end, sometimes it's very different. Well, that's why this is so important, because 300 years later, sometimes words change. Sometimes people mean different things. And so it really matters when we're talking about the authoritative text that guides our lives, that we believe and we put our lives into, is, is important and matters and doesn't have much controversy. So a good example to sort of start the tension of this is imagine that it is uh, 3,024. It's 1,000 years later, okay? And the Donatos right here on Northwest and King, okay, the Donatos Pizza Place, had like a spray-painted graffiti thing that, that, you know, you couldn't tell if it was like a gang graffiti or like an artistic graffiti, but it just says, our pizza is fire, okay? Imagine it said that. Now, in, in the year 3,024, this somehow the bricks just last 1,000 years, but you're like... Man, I'm so confused. Like, was this pizza good? Was it bad? Was it made of fire? Did they use fire to make the pizza? A thousand years later, you don't really know. So how do you figure out the original meaning of what was meant? Well, in 3,000, you probably have AI that's even better than it is now. And you type in the meaning of the word fire in what they would figure based on the paint samples. It's a thousand years old from, you know, 1900 to 2100, right? And, that, and then they would just pull up thousands and thousands of uses of the word fire. And then the AI would probably try to figure out, based on the context of pizza and fire, it probably would struggle because it'd be thinking that it's like dealing with how you cook a pizza. But then it finds out, you know, on Urban Dictionary or whatever, what fire means to young people. It means cool, right? In, in this specific time frame. But 50 years ago, maybe it didn't mean cool. And so you've got to figure out, okay, well, what does it mean? And so then what you do is you find hundreds of other people using this word, and you try to figure, okay, well, that time they meant this, and this time they meant this. And that's what happens in the Bible. They take a text, and they find all, they use all the biblical texts, and then they use all, a lot of times they'll use hundred year, a couple hundred years further and back to figure out what this word was used for in the general culture, and that's how they try to parse through the meaning, because the meaning then we want to convey to us now, but we might not always use the word the same way. So when you read your Bibles, sometimes it's translating exactly what that word is. Sometimes it's translating the spirit or meaning of the word so that we might better understand it. This is a good example. If you were to say the pizza is fire, let's say that they find out, you know what, I think the young folk at this time were saying that fire meant it was really good. And they could probably figure out that it was probably a 30-year-old who wrote the graffiti because fire is now out, right? It's outdated. You can't, uh, sorry, if you're 30 and you're like, I still use the word fire, great. They would say it slaps, right, or something of that nature, right? This pizza slaps. Or I don't even know what the kids say now, okay? But, uh, yeah, I'm clearly outdated. But they would say that, and so then they would, they would assume from all this, this is what this means. And then they would translate it to another language, right? So let's say in, in 3024, all your friends spoke Spanish. And so you figured out, okay, I think this means the pizza's good. I think that's what it means. Now I need to translate it to Spanish. So do I translate it, uh, la pizza es fuego, or la pizza es bueno, right? Because do I translate exactly the, the pizza's fire? That's, that's literal what it means. But then people might not know if fire means good because we're 1,000 years later. Or do I translate the pizza is good? So this is just a small example of the, the detail and tension that comes into translating the Bible. Now, I'm not saying to say, oh, this is Bible. Man, it's so inaccurate and doesn't know what it's talking about, and we can't trust it. We can. I'm just here to say that this is the complexity and the rigorousness over hundreds and hundreds of years that has been parsed through as this Bible has become what we call canonized or closed through a massive amount of this type of study. 
And so today, specifically, the passage that we're looking at in John, you know, 7.53 and then John 8, is dealing with a specific discipline of uh, biblical analysis called textual criticism. So I'm almost done if you're hanging on with your Bible hat and you're ready to take it off. Just give me two more minutes, okay? So textual criticism is the discipline where scholars evaluate both external and internal evidence to try to determine which reading is most likely the original. And then external evidence refers to the the weighing the various manuscripts in light of their age, how widespread in their distribution, what type of text they represent. So I talked about how like you would take what people say 100 years before and after kind of a thing. And then internal evidence refers to the actual scribes and the probabilities of what they may have done, whether intentionally or unintentionally, because most of these manuscripts we have were, tra- were transcoded from a scribe, right? Writing, rewriting whatever it said, and they forget to put an apostrophe or whatever, right? So the thousands of these manuscripts they work through. The problem with John, the, the passage that we're reading, is it is in a very weird spot in John, 752 and then 812. They, they flow together. John, what we're reading right now, it, does not, it doesn't really fit. Uh, people who are grammatical scholars, they argue the syntax, the sentence structures, what John would typically write like, it's very different than anything he would write. Uh, and then add on top of that, that it was, this story was not in the original manuscripts until 500, the, the 5th century, so 400 to 500 AD. So it's missing for three or 400 years. And so that would be another sign of like, man, I don't know if this story was originally in the original manuscript that we have. But it was found in this spot, it was found before, after John 7.44. It was found after John 7.36. It was found at the end of John in some manuscripts, at the end of chapter 21, at the very end. It was even found in the, uh, a manuscript from the book of Luke, which is a whole other gospel account at the end. So it, you know, it can, it's kind of been all over. And as I was reading this and reading commentary on it and things like that, I got to this sentence that I just thought was hilarious that I wanted to share with you. Um, it says, For a more complete discussion of the locations where this floating text has ended up, as well as a minority opinion on the authenticity of this passage, see M.A. Robinson, this is the name of his, his little article, preliminary observations regarding the Pericope Adulterae based upon fresh collations of nearly all continuous text manuscripts and all lectionary manuscripts containing the passage in the Philologia Neo-Testamentaria. If I can't even read the footnote, how am I supposed to read the article, right? Uh, I say that to say that um, if you really want to read this, you can. You can study it. But uh, most of you would be like, I didn't even know this was a problem. I was just going to skip over those two brackets like it was nothing. Um, but what I would tell you and what I would lean towards, and this is where I'd land personally. If you don't, that's okay. But uh, Leon Morris would echo this. He's one of our scholars that we read a lot of. Um, that the textual evidence of this passage makes it very impossible to believe that this is written by John in the book of John. But, but this is what he says. If we cannot feel that this is a part of John's gospel, we can feel that this story is true to the character of Jesus. Throughout the history of the church, it has been held that whoever wrote it, this little story is authentic, and it rings true. It speaks to our condition. It is thus worth, worth our while to study it, though it may not be authentically part of John's specific writing. And so I, as we end with this, before we get into the actual story, I want to leave you with two questions that I think help you feel confident about this passage. One is do these verses teach truth that violates other scripture? And the answer is no, they do not. And the second question is, do they in fact corroborate or work with other scripture and substantiate it? And the answer is yes, they do. So whether or not John wrote this story, it is, it is of beautiful, authentic truth of, this, of Jesus and what he has done. Uh, and so what I want to do is I want to teach it, and I will talk a little bit about if it was where it is supposed to be in the book of John, what that would look like. Um, but the story itself is beautiful. So if you're there, John 8, let's jump in. 
This, this story is typically titled uh, A Woman Caught in Adultery. I like to title it The Couple Caught in Adultery because everybody knows it takes two to tango. Uh, probably didn't need to be your eighth grade sex teacher to tell you that. Um, but let's get into it and we'll figure out where the, other, where the guy was in this whole situation because he's not really present. So in verse 53, it says this, and each one departed to his own house. See how it kind of ends here. And then Jesus went, in, went to the Mount of Olives, which is outside the Jerusalem. And he, he hangs out there a lot at night and then comes back in. And so in verse 2, early in the morning, he came to the temple courts again. Now, really quick, if this was where it should be in the book of John, if this is exactly where it needs to be and it was John's writing and it just wrote weird in this passage, this would technically be the day after um, the last day of the festival. So last week we talked about how Jesus in the book of John kind of promotes each of the festivals in the Jewish culture and then, and then promotes a deeper level of understanding that he fulfills in it. And so last week we talked about the, what was the Feast of the Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. And I, there's a lot of really cool activities that they would do during that. But the priority of it was to remind themselves of how God had brought them out of Egypt through the wilderness. And specifically in the wilderness, they followed a cloud by day and a, a pillar of fire at night. Which is like crazy to me that you're like, let's just follow that giant flame in the sky, right? And, they, and that, that's to remind them of that. And so they would do things that reminded them of that. They also uh, remind themselves of how water came out of the rock and quenched their thirst and how manna uh, flew from the sky and they ate. And so they would remind themselves of this. And so on the last day, which was last, which was last week, it was the last day of the festival, Jesus comes up, does this big controversial thing. He says, I am the true living water. Not like the rock, you will never cease to be thirsty again, or you will, you will cease to be thirsty again. I will, I will fulfill that through my spirit. And then it ends, and then it says the next day. So if this was in line with the book of John, this would basically be the end of the festival. So everybody would be leaving. So there'd be very few people in the temple courts if this was the case. If this wasn't here, it's just a someday in the courts, in the temple, whenever Jesus was there, which he was there a lot. So that's either way you want to take it. But that sets the scene. He's in the temple courts. And remember, the temple has the Holy of Holies building in the middle, and it's surrounded by this massive like colonnade of, of, of uh, patio, if you will, much bigger than our lobby. <laughs> uh, and... And they would just teach different teachers and things and stuff like that happening. Jesus is teaching, and it says, All the people came to him, and he sat down and began to teach them like he would always do. Verse 3, the experts in the law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught committing adultery. They made her stand in front of, the, uh, of them and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the very act of adultery. In the, law, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone to death such women. What then do you say? Now this they were asking and is an attempt to trap him and so they could bring charges against him. So uh, we talked about how the Pharisees, you know, really hate Jesus' teaching. He's undermining a lot of what they've been building and they're trying to figure out how do we get rid of this guy. At this point in the other Gospels, they've tried to trap him with different things. And the goal was they would get him to say something that would be controversial or uh, against their beliefs and then they could easily, you know, kill him or throw him in prison and everybody would be like, yeah, he's crazy, right? And so this was their, this was their airtight, you know, another airtight trap they thought they had. Because what they were hoping to do was that he would be really lenient on this woman. And he would say, no, you don't need to kill her. And then everyone would be like, whoa, do we not follow the law anymore? And if he did, then he might deal with, you know, the fact that he, like, let someone die. And everyone would kind of like them for the grace that he had. So it was this really tense opportunity. And they felt like, man, we got him. This is pretty solid. There's one thing we know about Jesus. He always finds a third way, doesn't he? And so they come forward with a woman caught in adultery. And uh, in this culture, it's really important to figure out what, what would entail them coming to, to be able to prosecute this woman. Uh, in this culture, they follow the Mosaic Law, which is we found in the Old Testament, and then they also had more laws on top of that. But in the Mosaic Law, in Deuteronomy 17, this was the rule. It says that the testimony of two or three witnesses, they must be executed. They cannot put to death 
on the testimony of only one witness, and the witness must be first to begin the execution, and then all the people are to join in afterward. In this way, you will purge evil from among you. This is in Deuteronomy 17, in our Bibles. It was a part of the Jewish law. Now, this is referring to capital punishment, things that like adultery, right? There's a couple pieces you're noticing here. One, uh, that's to be two or three witnesses. In this culture, it had to be men. I guess women didn't count in their opinions. So that'd be two men or more seeing this. Uh, the second thing is that if you were a witness, you not only were a witness, but you were also an executioner. So imagine like watching someone like run a red light, right? And, uh, and they, they find out that you saw it and you're like testifying in court. And they're like, okay, yeah, I think he's guilty. All right, you got to go chop off his hand. That's the punishment. Like you'd have to go do that. And you're like, I'm just, I was just chilling at the red light. Like I don't want to do this. And what it did was it created this serious level of seriousness when you wanted to, when you wanted to uh, accuse someone of something. Because if I was going to accuse someone of something, I had to be willing to execute the, the punishment. And in this case, it was murdering and most likely stoning. They would sometimes hang people, but stoning was common. And you would have to be the one to throw the first stone. Uh, and so it's like, it's just wild that you not only witness this thing, but now you're caught in having to be like, do I want to bring this forward? And now I have to potentially start killing this person. The other interesting thing uh, is that it notices, it says committing... Adultery, committing, caught committing adultery. Uh, you, couldn't just, you couldn't just prosecute someone on speculation. You had to be actually seeing them. In fact, one commentator said, the witnesses ad- actually had to have seen the couple going through physical movements that could be capable of no other explanation. Compromising circumstances, such as seeing a couple coming from a room where they'd been alone or even seeing them lying on a bed, were not sufficient. Okay, so you couldn't be like, they were in the same bed together. I don't know, could have just been hanging out, watching a movie, you know? So they had to be actually seeing it happen, and it had to be two or three guys, which, like, what are the odds of this, right? Low odds. It's a, it, they were set up, right? Uh, and not only do we, can we infer that from currently where they're, where they're saying, but we also realize that it says in, the, in Deuteronomy, like I quoted, that uh, there's two involved, they, right? And then furthermore, if you read in Leviticus 20 and Deuteronomy 22, it says, if a man commits adultery with his neighbor's wife, both the adulterer and the adulteress must be put to death. Here they only have the adulteress. Where is the adulterer, right? That they watch them committing adultery and then be like, man, he got away. Oh, well, I guess we'll just take her. No. They set her up. They set this woman up. And they wanted to just use her as bait or a pawn in their plan to try to set Jesus up to say something wrong. Now, just if you just pause for a moment, like imagine the level of evil in your heart, to be able to use a human life just to be able to prove yourself wrong or right to someone. Like, that is a next level evil, right? I mean, they're like, they're just carelessly going to kill a woman. Because if you would have been like, yeah, stoned her, they would have stoned her. And been like, see, yeah. They would just killed someone, a disposable, uh, just for their plan. And, and a lot of us think, wow, that's like so terrible. How could, we, how could someone ever do that? But I would say that once you get caught in your web of lies, in your deception, it's very easy to continue deepening that. That's why a lot of people commit murder. I know, I know you're like, I'm not that far from murder. But in the, in the words of Adam Brigham a long time ago, you're not that far from murder. Because let's say you do something illegal and you get caught. Now you either have to be like, yes, I'm guilty and deal with the consequences. Or you can lie and try to hide it so that you never get found out. But then what happens is you create more and more and more lies. The best depiction of this, if you ever watched the show Breaking Bad, that entire, that entire show... Five seasons of stress. It is the most stressful show I've ever watched. It's all from like two little sketchy things he did that he just had to keep like fault. He's like, oh, I'm in this far. <laughs> I've already killed a few people. Might as well make more meth, right? Like that's, that's the whole show, right? 
and I'm going to die, so who cares, right? That's the whole premise of the show. So, and he was just a normal school teacher, right? So I, I think that we realized that the Pharisees had such a lens of the, the life that they had created, and they didn't want anything to make it unstable. And so they were willing to just overlook the fact that their evil of just killing a woman just innocently was, was worth trying to get Jesus. And that's our hearts, and that's what our hearts are capable of. If we get ourselves in a corner and we, we're, not, we're not kneeling to the Spirit, we can do terrible things and justify them in the name of truth. And this is what they are doing. Now, what, what I could add contextually could make this even, even worse is that um, if, because they want to stone her, it's possible that the, the consequence for, um, for adultery when you were engaged as a woman was definitely stoning. Other times you'd be hung a lot of times. And so it's, it can be inferred that she was probably a young teenager, 13, 15, maybe 16, 17 at oldest. So you have a woman, but it's really a teenager, and she then is brought naked, basically, probably very lack, like little clothing, into a public setting, like a mall. And then they're like, hey, this you know, woman committed adultery. I mean, the amount of shame and just like pure agony. And then you also might be killed knowing that. Like, I just can't even imagine what she's going through. And they're just doing all this because they want to just prove Jesus wrong, right? They don't really care. Now, what's interesting about this whole situation is they said Moses had said, right? Moses was the, the, the writer of the law. They said, hey, Moses said that we stone such uh, people, women. And, and Jesus actually could have corrected them. He could have been like, actually, it says to stone the man and the woman. Where's the man, right? I know you know where the man is because you guys witnessed it. Where's the man, right? He could have picked at them and made, them realize, and, and made everyone realize this is a trap. They're just trying to have an agenda. They're not being honest to the spirit of the law. They're not following the law. He could have done that, and he didn't do that. What does he do? I just, I swear I'm not making it up. He just bends down and starts writing on the ground with his finger. That is, I mean, I've never tried that one when someone's cornering me, but maybe it'll work. Like, I need this from you. And you're just like, hold on one second. And just, <laughs> it's like, I, that's what he did. Now, what's, what's crazy about this is we have no idea what he wrote, right? No idea. But a lot of people are trying to get their dissertation published. So I have seven ideas that we can uh, speculate none of which you can prove, but I just thought maybe you'd be interested. The first one, someone said that uh, he's using this to, to buy more time for an answer to them. I don't like that one because Jesus never needs more time. He always says like the perfect thing, the perfect time. I don't think he's trying to buy time. Number two, uh, he's writing what he will say. Like he's like writing it out so they can see it uh, in the ground as well. I don't know about that one. Uh, number three, he's writing the Ten Commandments, maybe. Number four, uh, they said uh, that he is listing the sins which the accusers are guilty of. That's a good one. I like that one. They're like lying, deceiving. You know, I like that. That's pretty good. Uh, number five, that he was distracting everyone from staring at the woman. And so he was drawing their eye from her to the ground to him so that people weren't just staring at this naked woman in the temple courts. That one's cool. I don't know how about that one is. But number six, this one's pretty, pretty interesting. Uh, that he was, he, was, he was quoting or writing the opening part of Exodus 23, 1, which is, do not help a wicked man by being a malicious witness. And so he was calling out the witnesses because you're like, you know what's going on here, and you're helping wickedness by perpetuating this by saying you saw this. So that's uh, another good one. And then my last one, which is probably my most favorite and most savage, is that he was writing the names of women which they had committed adultery with but had got away with. So that would have been pretty wild. They're like, Cynthia? Who's Cynthia? And one of them was like, I have no idea. That would have been pretty cool. But we don't actually know. So what we do know is that what he did bothered them, deeply perturbed them. Because in verse 7, they persisted. <laughs> Come on, man, answer us. And Jesus is just drawing and doodling in the ground. And so Jesus stands straight up, 
And he replies, whoever among you is guiltless may be the first to throw a stone at her. And then he bent over again, and he wrote on the ground again. Clearly, he doesn't really want to have a conversation. He must be in, really, in the middle of a really big drawing. Um, and he's just, he says one line, and he's done. He doesn't want to talk about it. He doesn't want to pick at the fact that they're misinterpreting the law and misquoting it, which he would have known. He's not going to do any of that. He's just going to say, hey, you know what? If you believe that this, this was done in, in pure intent and that your responsibility in this is guiltless, then go ahead and throw a stone at her. And so what he's saying here um, is this really rare, rare word. I talked about how earlier a lot of times you'll take the word fire and you figure out what it means. This is a word that's never used in the Bible other than this one time. It's a word called anamartidos, and it's a compound word, A, which is a negative part, uh, particle, and then uh, hamartano, put them together, and hamartano is, means to miss the mark, to do wrong, to sin. And so when you put them together, it basically means to be unerring, faultless, or without blame. That's what the word means. Um, and this does not mean he's saying, hey, if you guys are completely sinless your whole life, you can do this. Because we would know that you could never execute any judgment on anyone if you're like, you got to be perfect. What it means is, are you perfect in this situation? Is this situation, are you confident before God that you are doing the right thing? That you're not being a malicious witness? That you've done everything you could in this situation to get to this point now where we have to take it farther? There's another tension in this that this is, is maybe not... Um, it wouldn't be assumed, but if you read, I read about a lot of Jewish history, and this was a very messy topic, adultery. It, was, it happened a lot. Um, if you think soap operas are bad, you should have seen first century Jewish people within Romans, and it was just like a, it was wild. But there was a lot of adultery happening, okay? And they had a lot of like, almost like rules that were not in the Bible, but that were like spoken, that were assumed of things, especially when it related to capital punishment. Anything that was a really serious offense you would essentially get like a warning for it. Now, that doesn't mean you could just go like stab someone and be like, hey, I got one more warning and then I'm good, right? Like don't go stab any more people. But adultery, um, dishonoring your father, mother, things like that, like if you were getting close to that, you were actually culturally assumed to have to get a warning first. And so adultery is one of those things where that was kind of the case. Like if you started, a husband started to be, get jealous of his wife and like, hey, you seem to really like Jehoshaphat over here. Uh, I don't want you hanging out with him anymore because I think, you know, you might be doing some stuff. Uh, that's her warning, basically. And then if he catches her in the act, then, then there's, you know, it's trouble. And so even in that case, there was a lot of writings about how women would, would warn other women, like, hey, we don't like you hanging out with Joe, okay? Don't be hanging out with Joe anymore. And this is crazy. This is literally written. It, the common rule was that if they warned her, they would tell her, hey, you know, don't, don't go be alone with Joe. And if she hung out with him in the moonlight for it, listen to this, as long as it takes to roast an egg, then you could assume they committed adultery. Now, I don't know if about you married men, but you're like, roasting an egg, how long is that? But all we need to know is that that is how long it would take for people to assume you committed adultery. So if you're wondering, that's, that's the metric. But so, they, so if that did happen, then they would go before court. They had all these different procedures of how to then figure out if the woman was guilty. It's wild. It's like you read it, and you're like, I cannot believe they did this. But... So that is what would typically take place. It was rare that you would find someone in the act committing it with witnesses. This is very rare. And even then, they would not take it to the public. They would do it in private Jewish uh, leadership quarters and go through court trial in there. They would not do it in the public. So everything about this whole situation is just is completely corrupt. It's just completely corrupt. It's just totally agenda-driven. There's no, this was, they would never do it like this in any other instance. It's just to make a sign in front of Jesus and so Jesus, when he says this, he cuts to their heart. And I think the best way to describe it is he's basically just saying, is what you're doing really honoring God? 
Is what you're doing really honoring God? I think that that we could just take that one home today, right? Like, is what I'm doing really honoring God? Because you can justify it all you want. You can feel good about it. You can play games in your head. Is what I'm doing really honoring God, though? I remember uh, in college we had this like ethical uh, ethics class about Christianity, and one of the like questions we posed was like, if you were the the, the less evil for the greater evil kind of thing. That's a massive um, debate in the Christian world. Do you do like little evils that save you from greater evils? That was a big thing whenever Adolf Hitler was coming to rise, and the Christians were like, do we kill this guy? Do we fight in war? All this kind of stuff. So Bonhoeffer was really rest- wrote a very long book on. Uh, but our, our instance was, hey, if you were driving across Mexico to get, deliver uh, needed medical supplies to impoverished villages and like the police you know, like, stopped you, would you lie you know, about what you have in the back of your truck or whatever? Like, because you're, you're lying to the police who are corrupt, but then you're able to give this medical supplies. You know? and, and obviously everyone's on both sides like arguing. But this idea of, hey, is what you're doing, like this woman did sin. She committed adultery. That is a sin. It is not the intended shalom of what God has created for marriage. And she has broken it, and there's consequences. So, yeah, she's guilty, but are you guys all good with killing her because of it? Do you feel like God, you're honoring God in the way that everything went about here, that you stand before everyone, you testify this is what happened, and you, are you good with that? And what is their response in verse 9? When they heard this, they began to drift away one at a time, starting with the older ones, until Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Now, you, you know, we don't really know why they left. Obviously, Jesus had made it very clear, you guys can't kill her, by the way that he said this. But their response is hard. Did they get angry and be like, oh, he got us again, you know, foiled again? Or did they realize, wow, I cannot believe we were going to do this? Maybe some of them, who knows, right? We don't know. But what's interesting is the older ones walked away before the younger ones. Why? I don't know about you, the longer I live on earth, the quicker I'm easy to be like, yep, I'm not perfect, that's for sure. Not as good as I thought I was. I'm definitely broken. I definitely have habits. I definitely have things that I'm working on. I definitely am not a sinless person. And so it's possible that whenever he draw this, this conclusion to them, the older people are like, oh, yeah, I don't want to throw that stone. And the younger ones are a little more like, no, what do you, you know. But eventually they, he just, they all opt out. And I think it's because they had, you know, if you've watched Star Wars, they have like this Darth Vader moment, I think, where, you know, you, you've gone on this cycle of evil because you're trying to control, in Anakin's case, it was like the, the livelihood of his family, and, you know, he succumbs to all this evil, and then he's just evil, 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 and, but it, like, eventually it eats at him, right? And then he's staring at the face of, you know, basically death, and he's like, look, I'm your father, and then he dies, which is unfortunate. Spoiler alert, if you haven't seen Star Wars, I don't know what to tell you, but... Uh, but he dies. But he has this moment where he's like, shoot, everything I've been doing, I built up this narrative and I've been playing into it and I can't imagine life without it. But it's still just this, there's just this deep-seated, like, what we're doing is wrong. And I, I think some of them felt that. We can't assume it, but either way, all of them are gone. And it's just him and the woman. And he says, he stands up straight again, he stops doodling, and he stands up and he looks at her and he says, woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? Now, woman here, I, I have to, this is important. Woman is not derogatory in our, in our culture. It's a little bit like uh, pedantic. Is that the right word? No, that's not, that's not the right word. It's a little bit like, it, it just assumes. It's not like very respectful. But in this culture, it's, uh, it's very highly honorable. In fact, he uses this word for his mother whenever he needs to make more wine at the wedding. He also uses this line to his mother when he's on the cross. And he's like, woman, here is your new, basically, son. And he's pointing to John. So we know this is a very endearing term. He's not being cold. Some people are like, oh, he's being colder. He's not. He's being incredibly warm. Woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? And she replies, no one, Lord. 
And so he says, I do not condemn you either. Go, and from now on, do not sin anymore. This is just a perfect depiction of the grace of Jesus. He had the the ability to stone her if he wanted to. He was faultless in this whole situation. Sin had occurred. He could have been able to partake in, in executing her, and he doesn't. And he extends grace to her. Grace is just undeserved favor or love. It's just undeserved. She doesn't deserve it. She did make a mistake. Whether or not she got tricked or not, she did succumb to a sin that required a consequence. And Jesus basically just shows her grace. Now, what we always forget is the end. He says, go on now and sin no more. This phrase is is probably better understood, quit your sin habit. Now, is it sin habit as a sin of adultery or just sin in general? We don't know. But he's saying, hey, the life that you're living, this moment is marked by grace. And you can choose to go back to it, or you can choose a different path. And what I love about this story is it just ends. And you're like, why do you love that? That's weird. Why didn't it be like, and she lived perfectly for the rest of her life? Or she just like went back to being an adulterer? I don't know. Because that's just the tension we all face. It's the allegory of Jesus extending grace to us and us having to make the decision, do I want to keep my sin habit? Do I want to abuse grace and have it not change me? Or do I want to let it be the catalyst for new life and obedience and following my rabbi? And you know, there's people on both sides. The whole story of Jesus, some people follow him, some people don't. But he extends to everyone the call. I think he extended grace to this woman. I also think he extended grace to all of those religious leaders. I think he could have shredded them in front of everyone and been like, that's not what the law says. Where's the guy? Now you're guilty of false witness, which means you have a serious condemnation and consequence. And he didn't do that. He extended grace by cutting them to the heart, and some of them maybe took it, some of them didn't. But Jesus extends grace, but he doesn't ignore sin. And I think that's really just tense. In fact, one of the arguments for why this passage was not in the first 400 years of manuscripts is because they were worried. This is an, this is an argument, not a, or not a truth. But they were arguing that a lot of people were worried that this would dilute the severity of adultery. They were worried that if this was in the Bible then people could just commit adultery and not care because they wouldn't be killed and it didn't matter and all this. Like, right? like, they were worried that the grace that Jesus gives causes so much just tension and difficulty. Surely this can't be right. And, and I think we deal with that today. We read passages and we, like, we, we, we want Jesus to be gracious, but then we're like, well, we also want to be truthful. And we, want, you know, and we just play this game sometimes. Some of us are more grace-driven, some of us are truth-driven, and we just kind of yell at each other like, no, he meant this, no, he meant that. No, and, he, and it's just messy. Jesus let a woman go who should have been killed. He did. And, 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 and we have to honor, realize that Jesus extends grace. God says, I extend grace to whom I want and those to whom I don't want, right? I oppose the proud, but I show favor to the humble. And so Jesus in this moment is, is, is honestly just giving us a reminder that, that we are not judges. We are not capable. If we have a log in our eye and we are picking at a speck in someone else's, we have to first take out the log and then we're able to judge the speck. In the same way, these leaders had giant logs in their eyes, and he he drew them to it. So as we wrap this up into a time of reflection, um, invite Nick up here. I, uh, you know, I think one of the cool things about this story, regardless of where it is in the Bible, is it is a beautiful allegory of Jesus doing being that woman. Jesus is falsely tried and accused. He's brought before completely biased trials. Witnesses that lied, that were malicious, ultimately leading in a death penalty that people did act out. And 
he, he, you know, naked, basically, uh, shamed in front of everyone. I mean, far worse than this woman. I know it sounds like that's not possible, but, you know, basically naked on a cross outside the gates. Just utterly embarrassing for our sake. And the, the, the mess in that, the tension in that, is remarkable because even in those moments, Jesus is able to say the phrase, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. And that level of grace is just remarkable. Because imagine being a woman tricked and you're mad that you, you sinned and you're mad that you got tricked and you're just like so frustrated and now you're, everyone knows and you're embarrassed. And then they start stoning you, knowing you know that they tricked you, and you're like, just Lord, forgive them. I mean, what, what type of humility can you have to be able to say that? And Jesus does that. Jesus extends grace to her, but then he walks that same path, and he ends it with death, and he ends it with a forgiveness of the very people who will live out this trap and murder him. And so as we wrap up, there's kind of two angles of grace. One is the prideful, built my kingdom up, nothing can change or I'll freak out uh, person like the religious leader, and we're guilty of that a lot, right? We try to make our lives look a certain way so that nothing can make it fall over, and so we end up justifying things we shouldn't be doing or saying things or that we shouldn't be saying or, you know, all those type of things. Or there's times where this woman where we are just caught in sin, and we know it. And maybe, like, someone didn't walk in on us, but we just know what we're doing is wrong. We know it's not the shalom and intention of God's wholeness, and it's just not right. And we are just sitting in it, and we're probably mad ourselves, or we're trying to justify it, but you can't, you can't leave. The woman can't leave. And Jesus just says, hey, go and sin no more. So I have three questions for reflection. Number one, which is, seems simple, but is also the cry of repentance, is are we aware of our sin and our brokenness? Are we deeply aware? And some things come up, right? It's not like we're just clean. We never make a mistake again when we, when we trust and follow Jesus. But are we aware of our sin and brokenness today? Number two, do we trust and believe that Jesus has extended to you grace regardless of what you've done? No matter what you've done, Jesus meets you there and extends grace. And then lastly, he asks you to leave your sin habits. Have you left your sin habits? Why or why not? So as we just invite you in a space to process that, uh, man, that's for everyone. We also are reminded of some of the things that we do during formation time, and that's the bread and the cup. That's a reminder that we're not perfect, that we are broken, that we are sinful, and we partake in that as just a reminder symbolically of Jesus needing to die so that we might be made right before God. And so you can partake in that at any point in this time as well. For those who follow Jesus and believe in him, uh, the bread is gluten-free and it's grape juice, and then there's one in the front and then also one in the back. In the back is, as well is the prayer team. They would love to pray for you about anything and everything. They'll keep it with between you guys and uh, just praises or prayers, whatever you want, they're there for you. We also have the called the bringing box in the back because we don't call it giving because everything is God's, so we're just bringing back some of what is his as a form of worship, obedience, and faith. And you can partake in that. You can give online. Uh, and then the last thing is just to sit in these questions. We're going to have two more songs, and maybe you just want to sit through one of them. Uh, or just process or do any of this. We just leave you the space to kind of make it your own. Um, but man, as we remember the couple caught in adultery, that uh, Jesus' grace is far greater than we can ever imagine, and we all are capable of receiving it and uh, going and sinning no more. 
Thank you for listening to the Contrast Church Podcast. To learn more about us and how you can be a part of it, visit contrast.church.